And just how as we get back into Revelation chapter 6, and so if you have your Bible with you, or if you want to grab the Pew Bible and go ahead and open to Revelation chapter 6, that's where we're going to be this morning. And that's actually what I said uh, at the beginning of last week's sermon, is that we were in Revelation 6, and I had people during the week saying, well, where's Revelation 5? I was like, no, it is. I just misspoke. But we are in chapter 6 this morning. But before we read 6, we need to be reminded of this image of Jesus. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, but we actually see the lion portrayed as a lamb that was slain. And it was the work of that lamb that brought us into the fold of God, into the family of God, to be called among his children. And that's really important as we continue through the book of Revelation because we're going to start getting into some of those things that when people read it, they're like, I don't know what to do with this. This is kind of scary. This kind of freaks me out a little bit when we start talking about the end times and the eschaton and Armageddon and whatever you want to call it. But that's where we're at because the lamb who was slain was the only one worthy to take the scroll from the hand of the Father and the only one worthy to open the scroll. And that's where we are this morning. Jesus has picked the scroll up And now he's about to break the seals one by one. And so let's read this testimony this morning from Revelation chapter 6. Then I looked when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, As with a voice of thunder, come. Then I looked, and behold, a white horse And he who sits on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out overcoming and to overcome. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another red horse went out. And to him who sits on it, it was given to him to take peace from the earth. And that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. Then I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sits on it had a pair of scales in his hands. And I heard something like a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, One shinnicks of wheat for one denarius, and three shinnicks of barley for one denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, then I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and he who sits on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar of the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. And because of the witness which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Master, holy and true, will you not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And a white robe was given to each of them, and it was told to them that they should rest for a little while longer 
until the number of their fellow slaves and their brothers who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. And then I looked, and when he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll. And when it was rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Let's pray. Good and gracious God, because that is who you are, good and gracious. And even as we read these words this morning, Lord, I pray that our hearts and our minds and our ears would be open to hear. God, and that we would be ready and willing to receive what it is that you want to give to us this morning. And as we listen, Lord, that we would allow ourselves to be moved out of the way with our own prejudices and presumptions and desires and just be able to sit in this word and to receive good news. And Lord, that you would make very little of me, but very much of yourself. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to do this a little bit differently than usually usual. Usually I go, you know, verse by verse, and sometimes that's, sometimes that's really, really helpful, but I think this one we really have to take chunk by chunk uh, because each chunk is a little bit different than the last chunk, and each chunk says a little bit different thing than the other chunk. And so we're going to look at this chunk by chunk instead of verse by verse. But it is still going to be in order but I want us to look at it in order only because I think it's revealing more and more about the heart of God and on the matter at hand. And so the first thing that I want us to see is these first four seals that are opened in verses 1 through 9. And in these first four seals, we see a shift in the view, right? Because in chapter 4 and 5, we're in heaven looking at heaven. We're in the throne room of God seeing what's taken place through John's eyes. But now we are shifting as Jesus opens each seal on the scroll. We're shifting our gaze from the throne room of heaven to what's taking place on earth. In these first four seals, we see four things released on earth. It's what you've probably heard in some context is the four horsemen of the apocalypse. That's probably a really common phrase, and whether you knew where it came from or not, now you do. People often refer to this time as the, this, this scripture as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I don't want to use that language, because when we hear apocalypse, we think of a very specific moment in time in history that is to take place. And I want to be careful because 
as we read through Revelation, there are so many different ways to interpret it. There are so many different ways that one would read it and say, this is what is happening word for word. But I want to be cautious because I've already said that so much of what we read is metaphor and it means something that it might not actually mean as it is written, but it might mean something more or different than what is written. And one of the things that we have to understand specifically as it pertains to Revelation is that it is written in a certain period of time to a certain people in a context that they needed to hear it. I'm not saying that Revelation doesn't still apply to us because all Scripture has been written in a context to a certain people and group of people for them to hear it in their time, but it still applies to us because all Scripture is God-breathed. But this Scripture also, though God-breathed, has a certain context. And I could start talking to you about all the different ways in which you could read this, but I want to be careful to not just say this is the only way to read it. I mean, you're definitely going to hear my way of reading it. I hope it's just an undercurrent, not an overtone, but an undercurrent of understanding. But what I want us to get into now is let's start talking about these four horsemen, right? And though we could look at this as maybe a particular time and a time in the future that is to come, I want to think of it first and foremost as things that must just take place. Meaning at some point in history, whether it's time past or time future or even time present, these things happen, right? And so let's just quickly look at them again. The first horseman who came on a white horse with a bow in his hand and was given a crown, what did he come out to do? Well, he came out to over, he came out overcoming and to overcome. Another way that that gets interpreted in scriptures, he came out to conquer and was conquering. This is a sin of lust for power. It's about the sin that resides within man's heart to want to grasp power for himself. It's that desire within every human, with every man and woman, to seek out power in their own little worlds to build and establish kingdoms for themselves. This is, this is a desire of the flesh, a lust for power to go out and to conquer others. We can see that play out in everyday life. Each of us in some way has a desire to lord something over someone else, whether you realize it or not, whether you've been able to catch on to those moments in your life where you are overcoming someone rather than allowing yourself to be submitted to them. Right? And so the first horseman is simply a lust for power. It's the sin of lust for power that pervades within the earth. But I want us to also, again, think about this within context, right? 
So the context, you start reading it, and you're like, well, the horseman was given a bow, which seems really weird at first because the context is this is written to a group of people that are under Roman control, and the bow is not a Roman thing. Like, they really love their swords and spears and shields, but they're not really bowmen. But their neighbors, the Parthians, are. The Parthians are wielders of the bow. And so in context, you read this and you start thinking, oh, well, they're under Roman oppression, but there's not just the Roman oppressors, but there's the oppressors next door and the oppressors to the south and the oppressors to the north and the oppressors to the west. There's those that are always out to conquer others. But then you get to the second horseman. And the second horseman you start to read and it says, and then the red horse went out, and to him who sits on it was given to him to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another. Great sword was given to him. Peace is taken from the earth, and men do battle with men. Men make war with one another. Civil war and unrest breaks out. Civil war and unrest is breaking out. Contextually speaking, the Romans were pretty powerful. In fact, there were not too many nations, probably none really, that could stand up to the power that they had. But you know what the one fear, thing that the Romans did fear? Civil war breaking out. They could deal with every other group on their borders, but what they couldn't deal with was unrest from within. In fact, history shows that as you look at Roman history, the one thing that almost constantly brought the Roman Empire to collapse were not those outside of its borders. It was everything that was happening within its borders. But then when we think about this on a broader spectrum of things in the history of mankind... It's not hard to see where civil war has broken out time and time and time again. Where father picks up sword against son and brother against brother. Daughter against mother. It's happening today. And so what I want to say again is I think that this has a context, but I also think it has a broader application. And it might not necessarily just be some future event to happen. We can see these things happening right now. Look at the third horseman. What's happening with the third horseman? And behold, a black horse, verse 5, and he who sits on it had a pair of scales in his hands. Scales, like something to weigh something. Because then you read on that next one, and then I heard someone like, the, like a voice in the midst of the creature saying, this amount of payment, so a, 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 a kynix or, or shinix or however you want to say it, uh, for wheat, for, uh, of wheat for one denarius. One denarius is one day's wage, and it costs that much to get a one day's portion of wheat. One day's wage for one day's portion of food. 
think about that for a second. That means that a man, and yes, speaking strictly about men, because men were the workers in this period, only earned enough to buy enough for himself. He could not feed his own family. And so what breaks out in the land? Famine. Food becomes too expensive. The scales are representative of of weighing your, your, your grain versus your allowance. And it is tipped way in the grain's favor. It takes way too much to just buy enough food to feed a family. I don't know about you, but when I go to the grocery store today, and I look at the price of strawberries... I'm like, what in the world? I was literally just having this conversation with somebody yesterday. I have to pick and choose the grocery store I go to based off of the price of their strawberries. There is one place in town sells strawberries at $6 by the pint. I'm like, my goodness, that's too expensive. But then I go somewhere else. I can get a whole cart. Two bucks. And their label is from the same grower. But then I end up having to shop around because the grocery store that's selling the strawberries at a cheaper price, their pineapples are more expensive. And so we're constantly doing this Right now in our own lives, we're looking at the cost of groceries going up exponentially and we're like, what in the world is going on? This isn't the only time in history where our food has cost more than normal, more than what our wages typically allow. And so famine breaks out. And then the fourth horseman is death along with Hades. And really, this is the one where we see what's actually the result of horsemen's one, two, and three. Because verse eight, authority was given to them to death and Hades of a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Right now, the population of the earth is somewhere between 7 and 8 billion. So a fourth of that is 1.5 to 2 billion people. So if we're thinking from a futuristic standpoint, if this is something to come, there's a lot to fear. That in a short period of time, a quarter of the earth's population disappears. That's a lot. But if you think about it over time, it doesn't become such a scary thing. I'm not saying that it's not something future to take place, but I am questioning and wondering 
Because if we look throughout all history as war and famine and the lust for power overcame man because of sin that pervaded them and brokenness within, a lot of people have died because of that. A lot of people have died because of power and greed and civil war and famine and food shortages. And the only reason that I want to think about it from that context is because as we read Mark chapter 13, these are the, this is Jesus talking to his disciples about the end times. And so I just kind of want to read a little bit. We're going to jump back and forth between Revelation and Mark 13. This is called Jesus' Olivet Discourse. And essentially, it's just him talking to his disciples about the things that are to come. So Mark 13, it says, And he was going out of the temple, and one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. I mean, I don't know about you. Have you ever walked out of a place and been like, Man, this place is beautiful. It's a pretty place. I remember the first time that I came to this church. I was like, this is a beautiful church. It's a pretty place. But then Jesus, what if he responded to us, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Not one will be left that won't be torn down. Contextually speaking, they're walking out of the temple which was destroyed in 70 A.D. So take that into consideration as we start reading Mark 13 and Revelation chapter 6, that Jesus is talking about this destruction happening as early as 70 AD when all those buildings are knocked down by the Romans. So that's happening in 70 AD. All right? And so Jesus said, all of them will be torn down in verse 3. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately, tell us when all these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled. And Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and will mislead many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, Do not be alarmed. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pains. So how I read that, And how I think that that should be understood and the way that I think that we should understand those first four seals in Revelation is that from the moment that Jesus died on the cross and a great earthquake came and the veil was torn in two and the Spirit of God was unleashed to all of mankind... The end times began. The end was the next thing. Because what's the next thing that we all await for after Jesus' death on the cross? His return. 
And so we're in the times between his death and resurrection and his second coming. So everything in between are the last days. It's all that's given. There's nothing more to be had. It is but awaiting for the return of our glorious king. And so he says, in the meantime, expect that war is going to break out. Expect that civil war is going to happen. Expect that you're going to experience natural disasters. You're going to experience buildings collapse and fall. The things that you once revered, you might not revere anymore. Expect that famine is going to happen. That death will come. It's just how things are. Until the day comes when the fullness of my kingdom is established. And when my kingdom is established, all of that is no more. And so we're standing here waiting between this already here and this not yet tension. The kingdom is here and yet it has yet to be fully realized because the king hasn't come to set his throne up on earth yet. And so we're in the arrived but not yet moment in history. And in the meantime, all these things are still taking place. All these things are still going to happen. But here's something even more important that I want us to understand as we read those first four seals. Pay attention in verses 1, 3, 5, and 7, what the voices of the living creatures are doing. The voices of the living creatures in each one of the seals is saying, come. Not to John, but to the horsemen. It's the declaration of God's sovereign will that these things take place. That in all the suffering and all the bad things that are going on, God's not out of control. He's fully in control still. And then we see this fifth seal. And in this fifth seal, we see the martyrs that are under the altar in heaven. So we shift our view again, right? We're now taking our view from what's happening on earth back to the view of what's happening in heaven. And we see the souls of the martyrs, of the ones who were faithful in their witness of God. In the word of God, their testimony was true and they were still continuing to spread it, still continuing to tell it. They weren't afraid to proclaim who Jesus is. But they ended up where they are because of the persecution they faced. In the midst of the world, in history, Christians have always been persecuted for the word of their testimony. Especially in Rome. Especially during a time in history where the word of God was trying to go out and the Roman authority wanted nothing but to suppress it. And they suppressed it by murdering 
followers of the way of Jesus. In fact, uh, you've all heard the phrase, I'm sure, all roads lead to Rome, right? But there's this one particular road uh, that it's the, uh, I'm trying to remember what it's called, but it's the one that leads through Rome up to the palace, Caesar's palace. And this way was marked specifically by the bodies of Christians. This is during the reign of Domitian. And it was the bodies of the martyrs who Domitian had killed because of the word of their testimony and their bodies lined the road leading up to Caesar's palace. And here we start reading about these martyrs for They were persecuted for their faith and for holding true to the word of God. And if we turn back to Mark chapter 13 in verse 9, Jesus is saying to the disciples, But see to yourselves, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be beaten by the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a witness to them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations, and when they lead you away, delivering you up, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. And brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. From the moment that Jesus died on the cross, it became a free-for-all for the persecution of those that followed him. And up to this day, though we don't see it in America as much, Christians around the globe are still being persecuted for their witness of faith. We cannot forget that. But here these martyrs are underneath the altar, and they cry out, How long? How long do we have to wait for you, O God, to pour out justice on the earth? Will you not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? You might be thinking, well, that's an interesting prayer. Right? This is what we like to call an imprecatory prayer, a a prayer made against our enemies. And I want to be clear, it's not necessarily a wrong prayer. David prayed all the time in the Psalms, Lord, when are you going to exact vengeance on the wicked? When are you going to go against those who are unrighteous? But what we need to notice in The prayers of David and the prayers of the saints under the altar. Who does vengeance belong to? To God. Justice is a work of the Lord. It is not a work of the saints. Yes, we need to act justly. 
but to get justice, to seek revenge, that's a work of God. I mean, we've heard it before in Romans 12, 17, right? I'll read that real quick because I think it's an important passage. Romans chapter 12, 17 through 21. Never paying back evil for evil to anyone, respecting what is good in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, being at peace with all men. Never taking your own revenge. Beloved, instead leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the word of our testimony. That is what these saints had to endure before they found themselves murdered. So they were feeding their enemy. Maybe real food, maybe spiritual food. It's what we're called to do, right? To invite hungry people to be filled with joy in Christ Jesus. But it's not our fault. They don't want to receive where that joy comes from. We might be hated for it. And that's okay. Because we're still going to do it anyway. We're still going to invite hungry people. We're still going to try to feed them. We're still going to try to give them drink. Because that's what we've been called to do. And so these saints receive the reward of that, which was death. But I love this. I love this. Because they're asking how long. They're wondering when it's going to happen. But it's not in their timing. It's in God's timing. And in the meantime, a white robe is given to each of them. A robe of purity, of righteousness, a robe of victory was given over to them. And then it says that they should rest for a little while longer. Just rest. Just, you're here in the peace of God. Rest. What, what do we receive for, the, for our labors? Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Here they are at the end of their labor of testifying of the word of God. They should be filled with the rest of God. The work of the Lamb is at play, even for the martyrs in heaven. And then the sixth seal. They didn't have to wait long, for the wrath of God comes. At the appointed time has arrived for the Lord's wrath to be poured out, verses 12 through 17. But we see two primary things happening. We see the cosmic signs... Upon created order. God's wrath being poured out upon creation. Romans 8, 18 through 22, reminds us, For I consider the present sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 21, For that creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. Remember, in the garden, it wasn't man that was cursed because of their choice. It was the ground that was cursed. Creation fell with man. And so they are longing that that corruption within itself would also 
be freed. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And so what ends up happening is you see this this wrath poured out of God and he's using the created order of things to do it. The heavens are rolled up, the moon turns red, the the seas to blood, the the stars fall from heaven upon the earth, the islands and the mountains disappear altogether. The moment has come that the created order of things is that they've been longing for has arrived. And so they start to reveal that which God is doing. And then we see the wrath of God poured out upon the inhabitants of the earth. And these aren't just any normal, regular inhabitants. These are the inhabitants that have rejected God by rejecting Christ Jesus. And this is the most important thing that you could walk away from today. That's why this is so encouraging and not discouraging. That's why this is a good book and not a scary book. Because wrath and judgment isn't poured out upon those who are faithful believers. Wrath is only poured out for those who do not believe. That's so clear in verse 16 when it said to the mountains, these are the people that that went out, right? This is the, the kings and the great men, the commanders, the rich, the strong, the slave and the free, They go and hide themselves in caves and among the rocks and the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The Lamb doesn't have wrath for his people. The Father doesn't have wrath for his children. Why? Because the Lamb already paid for that. The Lamb already received the wrath of God on our behalf. This is Isaiah 53, 10. But Yahweh was pleased to crush him, to crush Jesus, putting grief on him. And if you would place his soul as a guilt offering, he will see his seed and will prolong his days. God was pleased to put the wrath that that we would receive upon Christ. Even furthermore, we read in Romans chapter 5, 8 and 9, and God demonstrates this, and I said this earlier, God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood, shall we be saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God through him. God's wrath is not for the believer. God's wrath is for the unbeliever, those who have rejected Christ outright and said, I want nothing to do with you, O Lamb. And so the wrath is poured out upon them. And so much so that they would rather have the rocks fall on them and crush them than experience the wrath of God. For the great day of their wrath has come who is able to stand. I want to make this clear. This is where we're going to wrap up because I have preached really long. (laughs) But this is where we're going to wrap up. You can rest assured 
that just as the martyrs under the altar of heaven, that God is coming for his children. And he will not let justice be unfulfilled on their behalf. And in the same manner, God is coming for you, and he will not let justice be unfulfilled on your behalf. Some of you have suffered much. You have been through a lot. You have experienced pain that others might not even know about or be able to comprehend. You might have moments where you cry out, God, how long do I have to suffer these things? And God's response to you is, you have received the white robe. Rest for a little while longer because I'm coming. I'm for you. I am not against you. And that is our cry. Because as the unjust cry out in verse 17, who is able to stand? We cry out Romans 8.31, if our God is for us, who can be against us? Amen. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, the seals seem scary. But if we start to look at them and unravel them and unpack them, we see we've already faced so much of it. And the wrath that's to come isn't for us. It's the moment of your glory to be revealed to all of creation and we get to be witnesses of it. And that is a joyous occasion. And so whatever we suffer, Lord, we give back to you and we say, we will wait. We will wait for you to fulfill justice for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.